You're listening to Leading Up with Udemy. This podcast is your guide to developing your skills as an emerging or seasoned leader. I'm Alan Todd, your host and the Vice President of Leadership Development at Udemy. Together, we can work, lead, and live differently to create a better world. I was so excited to sit down with Dr. Rebecca Ray from the conference board. She runs a large research team at an important 100-year-old nonprofit institution in America that studies the workplace and human capital trends in the world. And she had such a great vision about a future workplace becoming an oasis, a place where people come and can do their best work, and a place where great things happen, and a place that's fun to go to and entertaining and, and treat it like something special. And so when leaders think about the workplace, I hope they're thinking about it in terms of making this a place where everyone can come in and do their best work, to bring their best selves to work, to be respected and rewarded, to have the ability to learn and grow, to have an impact, to do work that's meaningful. That's what leaders can make happen. But let's be candid. People are bringing all of the stuff they feel and all the things they experience into the workplace. But maybe for an eight-hour shift or whatever it may be, that workplace is an oasis. Nearly three-quarters of companies in the United States have adopted or plan to adopt a hybrid model of work. We're a few years into this hybrid work experiment, but we're still figuring out exactly how leaders can unite, motivate, and develop their teams. This week on Leading Up, we bring the incredible Rebecca Ray. She's the Executive Vice President of Human Capital at the Conference Board, a nonprofit think tank founded over 100 years ago that delivers business insights on the most challenging issues of our time. Rebecca's distinguished career includes being an executive at three Fortune 50 companies, writing for Forbes magazine. She earned her PhD from New York University and was named Chief Learning Officer of the Year by Chief Learning Officer magazine. Rebecca, welcome to the podcast. If only all of that were true. Thank you, Alan. That's very, that's very kind. But you know, I, I always love an opportunity to, to think with you, to discuss things, to learn from you. Thank you for the opportunity to join you today. Yeah, likewise, Rebecca. Thanks so much for being here. So we're talking about the future of the workplace today. I know it's a topic you're passionate about. I saw a SHRM study, Society of Human Resource Management, seven in 10 would rather look for a new job then return to office in person full-time. It's back to kind of where's this magic formula. Mm-hmm. And the other one I saw that caught my eye, um, Amazon CEO Andy Jassy w- was kind of trying to pump people up. And he said, it's easier to learn, model, practice, and strengthen our culture when we're all in the office together most of the time. So advocating for that. And then 14,000 employees joined a Slack channel to advocate for remote work. So I'm wondering, how's this going to shake out or where will the line divide in your mind? And is there an issue of trust? Do employees think that they're not trusted to do work at home? What's the root of the issue of hybrid work or, you know, this part-time home in an office? So there's a lot to unpack in there, Alan. So let me just do a random walk through some of them, okay? Yep. I think that the pendulum will not normalize, but will remain with more of the hybrid than not. And even in those settings where flexibility is not as easy to pull off, for example, in a manufacturing environment or, you know, some of the places where, you know, you can't deliver healthcare beyond a certain point remotely. So there's, there are just some 
some jobs, you know, there are servers in restaurants and that sort of thing. It's just, it's not an option. But even in those settings, people want flexibility. So organizations need to think about how they're going to do that. So is that a split shift? Is that flexibility or sometimes changing the way in which they assign work or shifts so that people have much more notice and that they can plan their lives better? Is it about providing services or support on site so people can quite often, you know, get a lot of things done and leave their weekends or whatever days off they have to be really time off? So I think we need to be thoughtful about that. But what you mentioned was very true. There are a lot of people in some of our, our studies and, and that of others will say they'd prefer a pay cut than being required to be in the office five days a week. So organizations need to really be thoughtful about this. And if, if you think about remote work, it was a, a tremendous benefit to many, particularly people with disabilities, women with the preponderance of childcare or elder care. And I don't mean to take anything away from you know, well-meaning, very involved husbands or partners, but it does fall to women quite often. And for a lot of women, the workplace is not necessarily a fun place or people of color or marginalized groups or underserved populations. And so the level of freedom from microaggression or from other things in the workplace was a welcome change for many. It leveled the playing field for a lot of people uh, for whom coming into the office is a particular challenge. So I think we want to be just thoughtful about this. If the, the vast number of people who say that working remotely, at least some of the time, is a higher factor in their decision-making process, it disproportionately impacts women, people of color, people with disabilities. So if we say that we are about diversity and we want diversity in the leadership ranks or in our in our workplaces, and I, I think all of us would say that that's certainly an admirable goal and something many are working toward and many are accomplishing, but you're going to disproportionately impact the very people you are enticing to stay with you, to go up to the leadership ranks, and to be the kind of employees that are grateful for the opportunity to work remotely and be flexible. So I want to be careful about the unintended consequences of this. You have a vision for the workplace as an oasis in a world gone mad. I'd love to hear your thoughts on some ideas about what that future workplace looks like and how leaders might create that environment. Alan, I think the world has in some ways gone mad. We can't escape the constant barrage of news headlines, but it is a world that can begin to feel very uncertain. And if we thought about the workplace, which is one of the few things in life you can kind of control, you know, we can't fix society's ills, we can't stop wars and famine, we can't stop climate events, but we can control the workplace. At least senior leaders can choose to do that, right? They can control the pay equity. They can control how people are uh, developed. They can control what behaviors leaders must exhibit and what will not be tolerated. And so when leaders think about the workplace, I hope they're thinking about it in terms of making this a place where everyone can come in and do their best work, to bring their best selves to work, to be respected and rewarded, to have the ability to learn and grow, to have an impact, to do work that's meaningful. That's what leaders can make happen in a workplace. But let's be candid. People are bringing all of the stuff they feel and all the things they experience into the workplace. But maybe for an eight-hour shift or whatever it may be, that workplace is an oasis. And to create that oasis requires great leaders. I think so. Let's first talk about something you and I have 
debated quite a bit over the last 18 months, <laughs> and that is have, have leadership skills changed at all in leading in a hybrid world versus leading in a fully in-person world? So wh what has changed in your mind from the, from the research? Well, Alan, I, I think both of us would argue that, you know, there's not that much difference between what the Greeks said leadership was and, and what we have today. I'm sorry to say, it's kind of like, are you a decent human being? Can you articulate a future? And can you help people see a clear path to getting there? So I think a lot of the fundamentals don't change. You know, you need to be able to help people grow. You need to be able to give them good counsel. You need to be able to be their support mechanism, if you will, especially in the early years where people generally, you know, they need a lot more guidance. They need more specifics. But I do think that there are things that maybe are even more important now. Empathy is pretty high. And I think it's also about being a flexible enough, authentic leader so that you can meet people where they are and take them where they need to go. And, you know, I used to do management leadership development at some terrific firms. And one of the first things we did in the manager one-on-one class, we'd say, all right, close your eyes for a few minutes and I want you to envision the best boss you ever had. What did he or she do? What was impactful for you? Just think about that person. And then when the exercise was over, we'd say, okay, tell us what qualities you had or you, you remembered and and so people would start rattling off all kinds of things. And then there's always in every group of, let's say, a cohort of 30 or so, there's about five of them that say, you know, I, I couldn't envision anyone and never had one. So you can't expect people to embody excellent leadership if they've never experienced it. And so I think organizations have a responsibility to do that and to help people develop people to become excellent and to have excellent mentors. So I think affirming people's ability to be many things and to have a long, great career at whatever company it is, that's important. I think people have to be empathetic, but I also want to be clear that during these last few years, we expected our managers to do a lot. So we expected them to sort of identify when people were struggling or were facing burnout or mental health challenges. That's a lot. So people who are in a leadership position, they already had their own challenges, their own family, perhaps God knows what kinds of things they personally faced. Mm -hmm. Then we're expecting them to be there and supporting all of the people on their respective teams. That's a big lift. We've got to support managers and we have to help them not become junior psychologists because that's not desired, but you do want them to be aware of when people are struggling, when you see that change in behavior, when you see someone's performance begin to slip for no apparent reason that you may know if you you need to find out what's going on with that person, how you support them. And that probably looks like understanding how to connect people to the sources or the resources that are going to be helpful to them. But it's a lot to put on leaders. And I don't know if all companies really did a great job of supporting leaders. We just we just assumed they would do that. Yeah, I would summarize with one piece of research that's been stuck in my head for a while from Gallup that employee engagement and burnout is pretty high right now. The number one contributor to employee engagement, according to them, over many, many years is one's manager. So it's clear what you're saying, that the frontline leader is struggling. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts, sort of two thoughts, and I'm just thinking of our audience here. They're going to be frontline leaders and maybe people that aspire to become a leader at some level in the business. And I'm wondering, what could someone do that's not a leader that actually helps their leader? In other words, instead of being a source of draining from, if the leader's job is to create that employee engagement for the employee, I'm wondering if you could flip that. Could the employee help to create engagement for the boss? Like, can they help rise up 
their whole team and make their team better and their boss better. And is any thoughts on doing something like that? Oh, that's such a great question. I think all of us have a responsibility to be as positive as we can. I'm not saying we need to become a Pollyanna, but I think there are reasons to be optimistic on a lot of fronts and to find those things and to celebrate each other and to recognize each other. I know during the pandemic, a lot of leaders started doing recognitions at ends of every meeting. Very positive. It's a small thing. Doesn't cost a dime, but it's a great way to do that. So I think, I think that's one thing. If people have, let's say, a little bit of excess energy or capacity at a certain time, go offer it. It's a great thing to do for your career, period, but every boss appreciates that. It's like, oh my God, thank you. And, you know, can you take this off my plate? And, and I think also being very candid with your boss about what you'd like uh, the work to look like or what you, what you see in your own career or things you'd like to try, or maybe just you saw somebody do something that would look like it was an interesting or challenging project you'd love to be thought of the next time there's something like that. Every boss looks for things like that or looks for people like that. If you can get to a point where your boss doesn't question the quality of your work, not that they're not going to look at it, but they trust you. It's like a gift that you don't have to worry that someone's work product is not up to speed or you're very concerned because they have a track record of things that are not quite accurate. If you can give your boss the gift of being dependable, that's huge. Be dependable. Build trust. Yep. And it makes me think, you know, as I was thinking about that question, it's really, why does the boss have to own all of your energy and engagement? Maybe you could own some of it and the boss could own some of it. But, you know, that's why I was thinking about flipping it and where does that go? Because I think we're in this kind of death spiral for a long time around employee engagement and the frontline leader. The vicious cycle sort of feeds more negative and we need to flip that to a virtuous cycle you know, where the, the leader is positive and energized and their team is positive and energized and that feeds on each other upward. But a lot of the research that you all are doing and the research that we've seen is that that's a struggle right now, particularly as we navigate a post-pandemic world and the model of work, this hybrid thing, which is, as we discussed, is bringing trust to the forefront. Well, you know, some of the more recent work we've done, we, we go out pretty regularly to thousands of people and these are for the large part, employees writ large, but many of them are in management positions. But anyway, we asked about their level of engagement and we broke it out into people who were fully on site, fully remote, people who were hybrid. And the ones who had a higher level of engagement were the ones who were hybrid. But that level of engagement was one point. So all three groups, it was either 30% or 31%. It's dead heat. And these are people who said that their level of engagement had declined from the previous six months. They also said that their level of, now this is self-reported, mental health had declined as well. This is not a good trend line. And so, you know, it's, it's never been easy to build an environment where people feel safe, appreciated, opportunity to grow. Table stakes are things like, you know, being fairly compensated and whatnot. But it's very hard. I've never thought that you could motivate another person. I think you can do a lot of things right that gives them the self-motivation to try, to deliver, to not disappoint their team members, to be connected to the mission. But I think it comes from within, and that's everybody's responsibility because you know engagement is not something done unto you. 
I mean, I think yeah. engagement is the net result of what a leader and the organization does or fails to do. And if you can be a leader where people believe that you have their back, it's about all you need. Fair, decent. It's not hard to understand, but it is hard to do. And it's hard to consistently do under the kind of pressure most leaders are under. buzz around Gen AI isn't going anywhere. Leaders and managers are key to identifying how their companies can use the technology and creating a plan to grow their employees' skills. Learn how Udemy can help at business.udemy.com forward slash Gen AI now. I'd love to get your thoughts on advice for people that are early in their career right now. We've got the newer generations. How do I build my personal brand? Do I become a free agent? You know, is this free agent nation? Is that the future of work? Like, how would you advise someone to think about their career today? I think there are going to be some skills that never lose their appeal or they will always be required. I think the ability to communicate well, the ability to do quality work, the ability to be perceived as dependable, as someone who has, I think, a sound way to think about things. They're a critical thinker, and I don't think that's going to go away. You know, the shelf life on a bachelor's degree now is, what, four years if you're lucky? Many of the things that you prepare for those jobs will be impacted or there'll be additional jobs. I mean, we're in the middle of a disruption now and, and everyone is, I think, looking at generative AI and looking what the impact is. Every company is probably thinking about what does this do to their market share, to their business model, to the way they interact with customers, to the skills people need. It's just going to be a wild ride for a little while. But I do think if you're starting out, you have to stay on top of technology. I think if you start to fall behind on that, that's going to have a, a negative impact. I think Companies need to be really thoughtful about how they help people see that generative AI may indeed be positive, but there are some risks, and they need to think about how they're going to upskill many of their workers to be able to take advantage of this. I fear that if a company doesn't figure out some way to mitigate the risks or to balance the risk, and there's, look, there's always been business risk, this is just new, but if they don't figure out some way to balance all of this, they're going to be at a competitive disadvantage. And I think employees might start to think of themselves in somewhat the same way, to understand this, to be good at it. I'm, I'm sure there's going to be a common thing on a resume that talks about, you know, chat engineering or prompt engineering, or, you know, there's going to be some skill set that's associated with getting the most out of chat GPT or any other form of, you know, generative AI. So I think there's something about being on top of the technological advances. I think it's also about being a student of history. If I had my way, I would make everyone who's going to go get some kind of formal education or, or even if they're looking to embrace a trade or to have a, a skill, many people are going down that route because they can find tremendous success. So whichever you're going to do, as you prepare to be an adult, I think everyone should understand economics. I think they should understand civics, and I think they should understand humans. And then go get a degree in accounting or whatever it is you do. 
Because I think understanding the way the world works keeps you from making assumptions about human behavior that may have nothing to do with the way you're trying to sell a product. But if you could have those three legs of a stool, I think, it would serve you through most of your life. The ability to think and to understand those core functions and then to the extent that you can, try to stay on top of the technology and look for those jobs that allow you to be close enough to that stuff. You're going to reinvent yourself probably six, seven, eight times. You've got to be able to think about what's an analogous path that I could look at in case this part of my industry or this job function goes away. How can I transfer those skills? I think that's why people in these last couple of generations into the workplace are very concerned about making sure they have the right credentials or experiences because they want a portfolio that is portable, that they can pick it up and go somewhere else when conditions change or whatever their their life stage might be. And that's a really great thing to have. And it's also going to help confidence a great deal. If you know, hey, no matter what, I know I have skills that are valuable and I can support myself my family, people I care about, causes I care about, and I can do it in a way that makes me feel good about the work that I'm doing and that it matters. That's huge. Two thoughts, and I'd love to get your comments. It sounds like our listeners should devote some amount of time every week, I don't know what the amount is, I'm curious, to learning, right? So you can't fall behind. And I would say the same thing about practicing, like these skills that you talk about, communication skills, right? Critical thinking skills, the study of history, to inform future pathways or predictions. All of that requires you to become a learner. Certainly for me, college did not teach me to be a learner. I learned to be a good learner, I think, in graduate school. You know, most people probably aren't going to do that. So what advice do you have? What could somebody do to build those skills and keep those skills to develop what you just called that level of confidence to feel like you could power through anything that the future might throw at you? I'd volunteer for things. You know, there's maybe a project where they need an extra pair of hands or they need somebody to do part of a project where you might already have that skill set, but the project itself is about a lot of things and with other people who have other skill sets, and you'll learn from them. So I, I think there is something about being a perpetual learner because what you have already learned is going to be rapidly outpaced by the amount of new knowledge that's out there. Every so often, I think I would go and read a book or attend a lecture or take a class or just go visit something that's so out of the sphere of what you normally do. Because that's when those intersections sort of, you know, they roll around in your head for a while. And then one day you'll wake up, oh, that's why I, I read that book or, or, or that's why I had a vacation in, you know, wherever it might have been. Because all of a sudden, some things start to, to look as though they are connected in a way that you might not have ever thought about in the past. So that's where innovation comes from. So I think it's being open to others and, and ideas. But I think it's also about being intentional about learning something new. There's a lot to be said for learning a new language later in life or taking up piano or something like that. It's just it forces your mind to learn new things and build new synapses. And that's what I think all of us should do. You're going to reinvent yourself and dabbling in a lot of other things over the years kind of helps you figure out okay, I really like that. I had no idea. Sometimes it's random knowledge you'll never use, but it could very well be the thing that makes you think differently about something. And you still know what it is yet. I really like that thinking of just getting outside of your area of discipline. Be a perpetual learner, not only in your discipline, but areas 
you know, one or two circles away or the complete opposite of your discipline. If you're in science, go study art. If you're in art, study science. Yeah. Just um, go be curious. And again, I, I think a lot of times you don't know why you've had an experience until later in life and you look back and you go, wow. So glad that happened to me because it prepared me for this. And each time you have something new and you master it, you go, okay, I learned how to figure it out. I learned what I where I needed to go to get information or find people who could help me, and I figured it out. I did it. And that builds a lot of self-confidence, particularly early, because, you know, we all start our working lives and we think, oh, my God, you know, I'll never get X or I'll never figure this out. And, yes, you will. You work, you know, you probably have to work your little tail off, but you will. You'll do it. And that gives you confidence for the next big thing. As we wrap up here, we have a question that we ask all of our guests, and you've said be curious several times, so now I'm going to put it at you. What are you curious about and learning now? Could be personal or professional, don't care. I'm very curious about world history. I always, I always have been 19th century American theater history in particular. So out of that comes an understanding, I think, of a lot of the social issues and the unrest and uh, really the history of America in a rather turbulent time. But lately, I want to return to something I, I did much more work in, which is genealogy. And that, to me, is just a huge puzzle. And I want to fill in a lot of the blanks and get a maybe a, a more complete narrative. But I'm also interested in becoming a much better cook. So I want to try things I've never never done before, and I would like to be just better at it. Beautiful. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. You know, Alan, it's been a pleasure, and I'm always happy to chat with you. I learned so much. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much for listening to Leading Up, a podcast from Udemy Business. We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode to help you level up your leadership skills. Follow the show so you never miss a new episode. And if you like the show, leave a rating or a review. We love the feedback and it really helps us find new listeners. To learn more about Leading Up or how Udemy can help you develop leaders at scale and move business forward, visit business.udemy.com. The Leading Up podcast is produced by Udemy in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Alex Vickmanis, Amy Machado, Brian Rivers, Danielle Roth, and Carter Wogan. Our original theme is by Soundboard.